Good morning, Christ Central. It's fun to see more people uh, in here as we're able to safely gather more and more. Uh, As Evan said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's a privilege to be with you this morning as we close out our sermon series that we've entitled One Another. And this final sermon, we'll be looking at the command to stir up one another from Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there or it'll be on the screen or uh, in your bulletin. We're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 19 to 25. I'd love for you to stand as is our custom here at Christ Central, if you're able, as we give reverence to the word of God. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word, that you would give me the courage to get out of the way so that you might speak directly to our hearts and that we might encounter you, the living God. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before coming to Christ Central, before this church began, I went to seminary uh, down in Oviedo, Florida. And when I think about that time, those three years, I can't help but smile. Uh, Those three years were some of the best years of my life thus far. I'm not super old, but uh, they were good good years. I think there was a lot of reasons for this. First of all, I'd recently gotten married to an amazing woman, so that was really fun season for us. Not only that, but I was doing something every day that I I love to do. I was studying the Bible as a vocation. However, I think the main reason why that time was so sweet was because during this season, I was able to develop some of the deepest friendships I've ever had. There were seven of us guys that got really close while we were in seminary together. We called ourselves the Oviedo Seven. Actually, we still do. Uh, named after the Cambridge Seven, famous missionaries who first went to China. I know that's seminary nerdy, but that's what we did. And because we were so close, towards the end of our time together, we decided to offer one another some parting words before we all went our separate ways. The way we did this is we each spent a significant amount of time filling out this, this questionnaire, this form for one another. It had some very personal questions on it. 
questions that I don't think any of us had ever asked each other before and questions that we certainly had not heard answered before. I'm going to read a few of those questions. I think it will help you understand where we're going in this text. First, one of the questions was, are there any aspects of my character that you think need addressing? Next question, list three specific areas of my life that you think I could grow in. What might that growth look like? Next question, how could I have loved you better in the time that we have known each other? Now, like I said, these guys were my closest friends, and therefore, I honestly didn't think there was going to be that much profound insight that was going to come forth from this exercise. Boy, was I wrong. I think this was probably the most formational thing that I did in seminary, and there was no professor even present. No offense, Dr. Strawn. But what made it so impactful is that although these were super close friends and we were honest and open with each other, there was a whole lot of stuff that we were unwilling or just refusing to say to one another. You know, the booger in your nose, stuff in your teeth kind of stuff. And apart from this time and this very invasive exercise, we would have all left seminary and these things would have gone unsaid. And I can say for sure I would have been a far worse pastor and friend and husband for that matter. See, the final command that we're looking at in this series is to stir up one another. And if you unpack the original language here, this command is actually pretty intense. The idea is to provoke, to incite, to prod, if you will. I don't know about you, but I don't always like to be prodded. And yet, if we truly desire to engage in this kind of community that God is calling us to, we must be willing to poke and prod one another a little bit. There's three things that our text reveals that I want to draw your attention to this morning. First, what are we to stir up? Second, why are we to stir it up? And third, how do we stir it up? And I hope that Bob Marley song is kind of playing in the back of your minds right now. Let's begin. What are we to stir up? What is it that we are supposed to be provoking and prodding toward? What is the end goal? Look again at verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Pretty straightforward. The stirring up is aimed at love and good works. Now, I love this phrase because it goes after this dichotomous trap that that we as Christians, I think, often fall into. Some of us tend to believe that being a Christian is all about love. What a mature Christian is, is one who has a really pure heart. And then others of us would argue that the Christian life is all about good works. That a mature Christian is one who behaves a certain way. But you see, the author of Hebrews, he says, wait a minute. It's not either or, it's both and. The mature Christian embraces both love and good works. I like how one commentator says it. He says, for the writer, love and good works are married to one another, implying that genuine love must have a practical outcome. What he's saying is that there are two sides to the same coin. Love 
being our inner disposition and good works being the working out of that inner disposition, the the working out of the love that's inside of us. I think it's important to note here that the Greek word that is translated good actually would be better translated as beautiful. And the reason why this matters is because when we hear the word good, our natural instinct is to think ethically, right and wrong. But the works that the author of Hebrews is after are not works that are simply right and not wrong, but but they're the kind of works that that move us, that, that bring tears to our eyes. Before I was a pastor, I served on a college campus as a campus minister. And every summer we would take as many students as we could away to what we called a summer training program. This was an eight-week long, intense summer program. For a staff, it was a really long and exhausting eight weeks. And so we had gathered for this summer program. We had our six staff and about 10 student leaders, and and we're about to run this gauntlet that is the summer training program. And then we received word that the head of the collegiate ministry that I was a part of was going to come visit us to encourage us. And for us, this was a huge deal. This was like the biggest, most influential person that we knew. So we felt really special and blessed that he was going to come talk to us before we started this summer program. And we're gathering, and we'd heard that he was coming tomorrow, and unbeknownst to us, this man, Mike Jordahl, he arrived a day early. And we're in these meetings, and we're getting ready and preparing. And while we're meeting, this man went out and by hand washed all 16 of our cars in the parking lot. And I cannot tell you how impactful that was for me for this team to have someone that we thought was so lofty and and amazing humble himself and serve us in that way. Would it have been wrong if Mike had chosen not to wash our cars? Of course not. You see, but that's the difference between simply a good work and a beautiful work. A beautiful work is one that lavish in goodness. It's over the top in its goodness. Car Central, wouldn't it be cool if Durham most observed this in us? Love and beautiful works. No doubt most Durhamites see Christians as those who vote a certain way, who judge certain types of people, who eat exclusively at Chick-fil-A, who take up our street parking and make way too much noise on Sunday morning. Wouldn't it be awesome if we got really good at stirring up one another to love and good works? And as a result, we began to shift what it means in this city to be a Christian. Brings us to our second question this morning. Why are we to stir up one another? And although it would be really cool if we did have an impact on Durham in that way, that's not the primary motivation that we see here for stirring up one another. If you look again at the text, on the first verse, verse 19, it begins with the word, therefore. As my ninth grade English teacher often said, we have to consider what the therefore is there for. And this therefore is therefore that it's showing us where to look for the motivation for verses 19 to 25. The why, what motivates us is found in verses 1 through 18. Now, I want you to look here. 1 through 18 is a whole sermon in and of itself. I'm going to try to distill it into about two minutes. But 
What's interesting if you unpack this text is at first glance, these verses appear to be an argument against love and good works. Listen to what it says starting in verse 9. Jesus declares, I have come to do your, to do God's will. And by that will, this is the author again, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. And he unpacks that, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, that's the amen point, that's where you should say amen, at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would, should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Whole sermon right there, right? But the cliff notes are that on the cross, Jesus dealt with all of our sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. What the priests, they were trying to accomplish daily through their sacrifices, Jesus actually accomplished through his body broken and his blood shed. And as a result... Those who believe in Jesus have been sanctified and perfected for all time. Meaning, coming back to our text, all that is unloving, all of our not good works have been taken away. This is the essence of what we often refer to as the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith, that because of what Christ has done, when God looks at you, he sees not your sin, but instead Christ's righteousness. Theologians call this the great exchange, and and what a glorious exchange indeed. It brings us back to our question, why then should we stir up one another to love and good works. Do you see how bizarre that is in light of what we just talked about? The author of Hebrews, he just said that all of our sinful deeds have been dealt with. They're gone. So the logical application would be go sin like crazy because it doesn't matter. If because of Christ's work on the cross, our sin has no consequences, why not sin all the more? It's a great question, right? But instead of saying, go sin like crazy, our text says, in spite of the fact that your sins have been dealt with, I command you to stir up one another to that which is unnecessary, love and good works. But why? Why should Christians pursue love and good works when we don't have to? When my wife and I got married, we decided to go with traditional vows rather than write our own. No offense to those of you who wrote up some really cool ones. But my issue often with the the homemade vows is they often focus primarily on how the other person makes you feel. Listen again to the traditional vows. I, Timothy, take you, Stacy, that's my wife, to be my wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Do you, do you hear, hear the emphasis there? The vow highlights not how Staley, how Stacy, how Stacy makes me feel, 
but rather regardless of how she makes me feel, plenty, want, joy, sorrow, sickness, health, I will be for her a loving and faithful husband. Which means that if Stacy is true to her vow, it doesn't matter at all how I treat her. She has promised that she is not going anywhere no matter what. Now one would think that that might motivate me to be a huge jerk. Because I can. Because she's promised me that there are no consequences for my poor performance in this marriage. But the shocking thing is, it has actually motivated me to do the exact opposite. You see, ironically, I find myself wanting to perform more and more. Not because I have to, but because I get to. Do you hear the difference? And it feels more real in this way because I'm not trying to manipulate Stacy into staying with me, but rather I get to instead express my gratitude for her choosing to stay with me in spite of how messy that I am. That is not the place for an amen. Do you see the parallel? Why do we as Christians pursue love and good works? Not because we have to, but because we get to. It's the very fact that God has promised to love us in spite of our performance that motivates us to want to love and serve him in return. Church, that's why we can sing about this firm foundation because we didn't build it. It's built upon Christ and his performance and not ours. Which brings us to our third and final question, how? How do we stir it up? I want you to look again at our text, and if you look closely, you'll notice that in verses 19 to 25, there are three commands that come out of this 1 through 18 truth bomb that we just received. I've ignored the first two up until now. I want to touch on them briefly. It says, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, 1 through 18, the author of Hebrews says, first command, verse 22, we are to draw near to God. Secondly, verse 23, we're supposed to hold fast to the confession of our hope. He's saying we're supposed to cling to the good news of the gospel. And then verse 24, the one we've been talking about, we're supposed to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Do you notice how awkward and clunky the construction of that third command is? Commands one and two, they're pretty straightforward because they're what we are called to do as individuals. It says, because of the blood of Jesus, we are free as individuals to approach the throne of God. And individually, we must cling to the truth of the gospel. But then this third command, if it was going to flow well, if I was writing the text, I would have said, work on love and good works. That's what we all need to do. But that's not what he says. It says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's two points that are huge that I don't want you to miss. First, the reason why the text doesn't just say you go work on love and good works is because apparently love and good works don't grow well in isolation. Why? Well, because we all have something in our teeth, but we just can't see it by ourselves. That's the whole point of this exercise that my friends and I did back in seminary because the truth is that we are all aware of the ways in which our neighbor could grow in good works and in love, but we're blind 
to the ways in which we might need to grow in love and good works. I want you to look around, seriously. Look around, look to the, beside you, in front, behind you. I want you to raise your hand if you know some ways in which those people could grow in love and good works. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. I want you to look around again. Now, did you know that the people sitting next to you, around you, they have some thoughts on how you could grow in love and good works? The sad thing is, church, that if we don't learn how to do this, how to actually say these things to one another, we're never going to really grow in this area. The second thing and this is important, maybe more important than what I just said. The writer, the writer offers a very important qualifier for our stirring up, doesn't he? He says, consider. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Don't gloss over that word. It's really important. It, re- it means that the work of stirring up is tricky. It requires some thought, some concern, and some gentleness. Hear me, church. This command is not an invitation for you to go around blasting people who you've got beef with. Don't miss the intent of what he's saying here. This text has nothing to do with someone who has hurt you or wronged you. There are biblical texts for that. This is not one of them. This text is about someone that you love and care about, that you desire to grow in the areas of love and good works for their own good, and not for your own comfort. The men that I did this exercise with in seminary, they were my closest friends, and I spent a lot of time considering and praying before I put anything down on their paper. Why? Because I didn't want to hurt them. I wanted to bless them. And I know how difficult honest feedback can be to hear, especially from someone you love. Church, it requires both courage and thoughtfulness to do this well. I pray that we will all spend much time on the consider how before we move on to the stirring up. In terms of how, the writer concludes in verse 25 with a couple tips for how to do this well. He says, first, don't neglect to meet together, and second, encourage one another. I want to look at both of these. I think it's worth noting here that the Greek word that is used for meet together is synagogue, which is the word, obviously, that we get synagogue from. And it's because of this that most commentators believe that the sort of gathering that the the author is talking about is that Sunday morning Sabbath worship, what we're doing right now. Makes sense, right? We're not going to be able to be very good at stirring up one another if we don't spend time together And more importantly, if we don't spend time together in the way that the Bible calls the most formational time of the week. I'm not going to belabor this point, but I think it's clear that the stirring up is to happen within a community that gathers weekly together for worship. The other tip that our text reveals is encouragement. Encouragement is so powerful, isn't it? It took me way too long to learn this as a parent, but there's no doubt in my mind that it is way more effective to highlight when my kids get it right than to highlight when they get it wrong. The truth is we all respond better to encouragement. I want to read now for you the first three questions from that form that we filled out back in seminary. First, 
What do you think are my greatest strengths? Second, in what ways has your life been enriched through knowing me? And three, which of my gifts would you like to see more of? I can guarantee you that the answer to those three questions had a much deeper impact than the harder ones. Church, we need to major on encouragement because it's that encouragement, it's that building up that will build the trust that is needed in order to say the harder things. Church, the good news of the gospel is that because of what Christ has done on the cross, we don't have to excel at love and good works. God's love for us, it's not based on our performance, but entirely on Christ and what he has done for us, which means, church, we don't have to, but we get to grow in love and good works. But you can't do it alone. You cannot do it alone. We need one another. We need to worship with one another. We need to encourage one another. And we need to point out those blind spots that are hindering us from growing in this area. Church, let's stir it up. May every single one of us consider more how to stir up one another to love and good works. Would you pray with me? Father, I acknowledge that what we're talking about is is pretty scary. To invite people into this place, to speak into our lives, and to actually enter into this place for one another is, is really, really scary and hard. And we must be very careful Father, but you wouldn't have written this for us if you didn't believe that it's what we needed. It's what that this church and the body of Christ needs. And so, God, would you help us to do exactly what you said, to consider, to be thoughtful about how we might motivate, might prod and poke one another to more and more love and good works. Not because we have to, because we get to. In Jesus' name, amen.